This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Bobby, and I'm your friend who knows just a little bit too much about pop culture. Welcome to Weekly Meeting of Pop Culture Fanatics Anonymous. For the past few weeks, we've been exploring the history and music of the Disney princess, and we discovered that at many key points in history, they have been the guiding light for Disney. However, you'll also remember that for a time, Disney was in a really bad place, both as a studio and as a company in general. The studio needed something new. And so who do you turn to in a time of crisis if you're Disney? A mermaid, of course. 1989's The Little Mermaid was just what the doctor ordered, but it was quite the tall order just to get made. So enough preamble and enough chit chat. This week, we are discussing the crazy production history of 1989's The Little Mermaid. So if that sounds good to you, let's get started. So Disney and The Little Mermaid, their history with one another goes all the way back to the 30s. Like they wanted to do this story as early as the 30s. And originally the plan was to have it be a part of a package film, which would basically kind of be just like a compilation of shorts um, akin to like uh, Fantasia, if you will. Like it would just be a compilation of shorts all centered around Hans Christian Andersen stories. But unfortunately, that idea got dropped in favor of just doing a short film on The Ugly Duckling, which was another Hans Christian Andersen film. But when they were concepting what this package film would look like and The Little Mermaid as a part of it, there was story beats that were done and there was a lot of, you know, like tentative animation and designs that were done for the film. So those just all kind of went into the Disney archives for about... 50 years until the idea came back up at Disney in the mid 80s. So there were two young animators by the name of John Musker and Ron Clements, and they were a part of Disney Animation Studios. And so there was in around the mid 80s, there was kind of this session that they called a gong show, pretty much just being like everyone kind of going around in the room and pitching ideas super quickly. And they would say, eh, or meh, you know, like, we're going to go for it, or we're not going to go for it. So during this gong show, um, they pitch the idea of doing The Little Mermaid again. And it is immediately nixed, because 
there was a already a mermaid movie that had just been released by a Disney subsidiary um, called Splash. So Splash was a big hit. Uh, Splash made a splash, if you will. And so Disney was like, uh, I mean, I don't know if we want to redo another mermaid movie because we we just did it. And so it got nixed at that meeting. But literally the next day, Jeffrey Katzenberg ended up green lighting production on it along with Oliver and company. So again, to set the scene of kind of where Disney is at, at this point, like we've talked about for the past couple of weeks, Disney kind of begins to lose its way around the late 50s, early 60s. And a lot of that and a lot of scholars on the topic have kind of concluded that the main reason for that is that Walt Disney died because Walt Disney for so much of the history of the company, especially those very early years, was the kind of creative nucleus of of the studio. And so many, he was working on so many things, both from the studio perspective, from the theme parks and everything. Like he was kind of the, that central point. So when he died, there was kind of this void that was left in the company as far as create, like who was going to be the head, who was going to take the mantle. No one really knew. And so because of that, and because the person who was kind of, you know, birthing a lot of these ideas and fostering a lot of these ideas and, you know, following through with production and everything was gone, the studio for the first time had to lead the company without its namesake, which was a very daunting task to do. So moving into the 70s and then the early 80s, you get a lot of films that kind of are not to say that these films are bad by any means, but it's definitely the company not knowing all of what they should be doing at this point. And every single portion of the company is kind of hurting in a very big way. Um, not just the studios, but like there was a point where Disney World and Disneyland because at this point, Disney World had just opened in 1971. And there was a point where the theme parks as we knew it probably weren't going to exist because again, they were bleeding money. Like they really just did not know what was going on. <laughs> and so by the time we get to, to the 80s, they have been kind of just turning out movies that aren't necessarily flops per se because they weren't terrible but they just weren't on the left like the caliber of the snow whites the peter pans the cinderellas these classics that really cemented disney as the studio that you wanted to go to for this type of entertainment and so a lot of the 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 tensions that were rising in the company um both from the c-suite to the studio to the parks all of that kind of came to a head in the mid mid 80s um this also coincides for the animation studios the animation studios was really kind of the biggest portion of the company that was kind of on the the edge of being dissolved completely because they weren't turning out anything and that movie that kind of put the nail in the coffin almost for the company was the black cauldron it was this movie that had been in production hell for so many years and it was this massive undertaking it cost all this money there have been all these rewrites and everything and just they released the movie and it is a stinker it is it it flopped so hard it almost killed disney as a company <laughs> and so at that point 
there is this changing of the guard that has to happen in order to save the company. So in the mid 80s, as you remember from the last episode, if you listened, I hope you did. I hope you're enjoying this. But if you listen to the last episode, you'll know that in the mid 80s, a man by the name of Michael Eisner uh, left Paramount and came to Disney to become its CEO, a position that for probably the last 20 years at this point, no one wanted because it was it was like manning a sinking ship. But Eisner comes in and he's like, we're going to turn this ship around. OK, we are going to fix this and, and fix it. He did. I will give to his credit. Fix it, he did. So Michael Eisner comes in and he acknowledges the pain points of the company, one of which the biggest being Walt Disney Animation Studios. And so to remedy this, he brings in another one of his executives that he worked with at Paramount, a man by the name of Jeffrey Katzenberg, to head Walt Disney Animation Studios. Katzenberg had no prior history with animation, but they just needed someone who could come in and fix this. That was the main point. Like this needs to be fixed. So Katzenberg comes in and he has this kind of like, we're doing a massive overhaul approach. We're bringing in all these people. We are going to make Disney the company to look for and the company to be in the animation game. And so the late eighties rolls around and he green lights all of these projects the first couple of which were like the Great Mouse Detective, which is technically, a, depending on who you ask, The Little Mermaid is technically the movie that, you know, officially kickstarts the Disney Renaissance period. It's officially recognized as the start of the Disney Renaissance period. But some people will say that the kind of prerequisite for the Disney Renaissance period, as far as like being a signifier that Disney is starting to get its groove back, is The Great Mouse Detective. So he releases movies like The Great Mouse Detective. He greenlights those. Those are starting to like so within the the public that Disney is is coming back. Like Disney is is starting to be a force to be reckoned with again. And this all sounds so strange in in hindsight now because it's strange to think of a world where Disney is not this massive leader in film. But at this point. The public really was like, ugh, Disney has not made a hit since the 50s, and that was 30 years ago. So these movies started to come out, and one of them, Oliver and Company, comes out around the same time as The Little Mermaid. But that is, again, building up this, it's kind of working the muscle again of making sure that the public knows that Disney is coming back. So jumping back to where we were, we were talking about with the whole gong show idea, The Little Mermaid gets greenlit even though it got initially shot down because they were like we just made splash i think with touchstone which was a disney subsidiary and they were like we we don't need to do another mermaid movie one is enough you know we're good and so it i think john musker and ron clemens went back they wrote this this treatment and then it gets approved and so they begin production on on the little mermaid and the good thing about The Little Mermaid is that there, because it had had this history with the company since the 30s, that material that I said that went into the archive came back out. And so much of this love, the story and a lot of these character designs and just the good kind of foundation and the starting place for this film was done um, by a man named Kay Nielsen, who was at Disney in the 30s, who was really passionate about 
this project and had kind of laid the foundation so much so that I think uh, Kay Nielsen is credited in the 1989 Little Mermaid, even though we I don't think he was actively working on it. I don't even know if he was still alive at that point. Um, but because of all the work that he had done, it laid the foundation for where the movie would ultimately build upon. So they're gathering all of the, the necessary elements to make the film. And a big piece of that comes in Katzenberg bringing in a man named Howard Ashman. And again, if you listen to last week, you'll know that we already talked about Howard Ashman and Alan Menken and what they did, but their involvement in the film goes a lot deeper than just doing the music. So Katzenberg calls in Howard Ashman. At this point, Howard Ashman had just gotten off of doing a, a one could say, failed run uh, with his uh, play Smile. It was called Smile. And so I think that ran on either off-Broadway. It was on stage. It was kind of did, I think, like a six-month run, and it wasn't the most successful. And so he kind of gotten, he had gotten fatigued with the New York Broadway scene. And so Katzenberg calls him in. He's just like, hey, I think you would be a great fit here. I think you, you'd have a place and you could really make Disney feel big again. So Katzenberg comes over to Disney and signs on to, to this movie. And Katzenberg found, you know, Howard Ashman because Howard Ashman had done the lyrics for some songs in Oliver and Company. And one of the, I think, supervising producers or music supervisors on that movie was David Geffen. David Geffen got in touch with uh, Katzenberg and said, hey, this person is really, really great. I think you should work with them. And so then Katzenberg gets in touch with Howard Ashman. And that's all she wrote. Now Howard Ashman is signed on to the film. And in that, he is starting to kind of concept, you know, music and everything. And he kind of unofficially brings on Alan Menken in the process. And so it's all kind of coming, coming together. And it's really this like cool tapestry of partnerships and friendships that the little mermaid is, is comprised of as a, as a film. Um, because on smile and smile, the, the play other musical that Howard Ashman had made one of the leads in it was Jody Benson and Jody Benson then went on to get cast as Ariel in the little mermaid. So it's really, it feels like this very homegrown effort that's happening with the film. So all these little pieces are coming together, but there is a bit of trepidation with the studio on if this movie is going to work. Now, it feels strange to hear that now because obviously it worked and worked very well, but there was trepidation because Disney had not done a princess film in 30 years at that point. The last princess film that they had done was in 1959 with Sleeping Beauty. And if you remember from episode one, we talked about that Sleeping Beauty was kind of all aesthetics and vanity, no story. Like it was this beautiful film that is obviously it's stunning to look at but it really just was not it was not that great and it kind of I think scared Disney from doing a princess film for a very long time so this was their first re-entry into the princess arena and Katzenberg initially in the very early goings of production had this kind of sentiment that 
you know, this is a movie that is catering to young girls and it features a young girl as the main character. We don't know if people are going to resonate with this. We don't know if little boys are going to like it. We don't know if this is going to be financially viable. And obviously that didn't end up, you know, being true. But the whole kind of concept of worrying about if this this movie was going to be viable and everything that went into it, it was kind of... um the whole production was kind of referred to as like waking sleeping beauty. Like that's what they were doing um, with producing the little mermaid. They were waking sleeping beauty in what that means is just, they were waking up the princess formula. They were creating a new princess for the first time in 30 years. And they didn't know it was going to happen. <laughs> they didn't know if it was going to be successful. And luckily it was, this is, this is not a story that you don't know how it ends. It, luckily it was, it was, it was quite successful. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. So they are starting to assemble the pieces of the puzzle together. And there is, you know, a key point, obviously, in this process of creating this film, and that's the animation, which... The Little Mermaid is not necessarily one of my favorite Disney movies. Like, I don't go back and watch it all the time, but it is legitimately stunning. And that is proof positive to the animation. I think it's one of the last, like, hand-inked and, like, celluloid, like, the process that was used for Snow White and Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty. That was, like, the animation process of it was it was the last movie to do that. So it really kind of cements that The Little Mermaid is this kind of changing of the guard transitional film um, because it is passing Disney from the analog to the digital era as far as animation goes, um, as, as far as being like one of the last films to use this very traditional way of making animated films. And so... Going, you know, zooming in a little bit, we go to who are these people that are creating this world? Like, who are these people that are tasked with creating this world? And who are the people that are tasked with creating this princess? The first princess that we've seen in 30 years. Well, that honor goes to two people, one person being Glenn Keane and the other one being Mark Henn. They are the two lead supervising animators on The Little Mermaid for Ariel specifically. One thing that I always notice with Disney Renaissance era films is how they do their credits. So if you go back and you watch, um, you know, the, the, the credit sequence for 
Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, uh, any of the like Renaissance era films, when you look, they don't do it like cast and then animators like it's kind of done now. You will see that they kind of parcel it out by character. So they have Ariel and then they have speaking or voice Jody Benson and then supervising animator Mark Henn and Glenn Keane. That's how much Disney was was trying to kind of infuse that the animators are a very big part of making these movies go. You know, it feels like we are starting to see animators become a lot more forward facing and the public is starting to know these are the people that make and bring life to these art to this these pieces of art like these are the people who make Ariel swim and like make her her movements feel so fluid and feel so natural and organic and then we have the people who are the voices like we have Jodie Benson who is this just powerhouse talent who is able to capture the essence of Ariel and to make her feel like every emotion that Ariel feels you are feeling it right there with her and you you get it you know like you really understand it and it's I think the one really cool thing about this era of Disney princesses is because most of it um or a good chunk of them were pre you know this kind of um I won't say infiltration but kind of infiltration of celebrity voice talent the focus was put on the people who you know, weren't exactly like big name celebrities, but they were the heart and soul of these characters. So whether it be, you know, the the Broadway actresses who were providing their singing and speaking voices or the animators who were, you know, giving them their look. And one thing that I found through researching, which was really neat, is that apparently Glenn Keane has aphantasia, which apparently like he doesn't have, his mind doesn't generate like mental images so if he goes to draw something, he kind of just goes for it. Like he did, there's no mental image of like, okay, I think it should look this in my head. And then he goes and like draws it, which is insane. It's, it's nuts that that is, that is, you know, what's going on, but it's so, it's, it's crazy because his work, Glenn, I'm such a big Disney animator nerd, but I love Glenn Keane <laughs> and I love Mark Henn because these are two guys who are really tasked with creating a lot of the protagonists and the, the princesses that we know from this Disney Renaissance era. I'm also a huge fan of Andreas Deja, um, who is like credited with creating the look of a lot of the villains. Um, he didn't do the villain he didn't do Ursula in this film but he is he's done Jafar he does he's done Scar um and a couple of other villains um but I think he did he was a supervising animator for Triton um in this film but you kind of get this kind of ragtag team of animators and it feels like the second coming of the nine old men um and if you don't know the nine old men are were kind of the the group of original animators working with Walt Disney in the very early days of the company. Um, so it feels like there's this kind of revival and many of them worked on Snow White. And so it feels like, again, it's this kind of changing of the guard type of thing, this, you know, transitional, this bringing in of the new generation that's happening with this film. And you see that in, so there's so many like one-to-one -one connections between the very first princess film and it's what feels like the very first princess film of this new era with Little Mermaid. Um, and so you got 
this this cool team of animators who are are pushing the bounds and creating their own standard for what a princess can look like and what she can act like. There's actually a really funny story um, from Glenn Keane in talking about this whole kind of changing of the guard situation. Two of his mentors were Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston, who were two of the nine old men uh, that I just mentioned. And they were at a screening for the film. And so Glenn is kind of, you know, very excited to hear their their response. And he goes up and he's just like, so it like, what did you think? What did you think of the film? Like, what did you think of everything? And they were kind of like, it kind of looked a little, like Ariel kind of looked a little like rough at, at parts and not like rough as in the animation was bad, but like as far as Glenn's choices with the character design. And they were just like, you know, sometimes she just makes these faces that aren't, you know, the most attractive. And Glenn talked about how he was just, he was kind of taken aback by that because he never thought to approach that every single shot of Ariel has to be you know, this kind of picturesque model. And Frank and Ollie kind of mentioned that when they were doing Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty and, you know, everything, they made sure that they looked picturesque in every single shot. They're a princess. They're supposed to look like a princess all the time. And Glenn kind of talks about like how, like, I never thought to approach it from that angle. Like I approach Ariel as, as this, you know, this human, she's, capable of having all these different emotions and that's going to show on her face and it might not be the most attractive thing all the time like if she's thinking pensively she's going to think pensively if she's determined she's going to be determined if she's sad she's going to be sad so like she requires a range of of different emotions and that they're they're playing for for realism as much as they can and so he talked about how you know there was definitely this idea in the early days with Snow White and Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty that they kind of had to be it was kind of beauty over everything like they had to be these just gorgeous you know princesses in every single shot and with the Little Mermaid with the approach that the team had they wanted to make Ariel feel human and feel real and have people connect with her and they can't always do that if it's only this focus on her being you know picturesque in every single shot like that's just not how they were going to approach it so it's it's cool that they kind of like he touched on that being their their mark like that being this class of of animators idea that we want these characters to feel real like they're characterized and they're you know definitely of of their worlds that we're creating but they also do feel like real people in a way so while the animation definitely was changing in that um these, you know, there are these different, you know, uses of technology that were going to be coming up. Um, fun fact, there were a million, I think, drawn, like hand-drawn bubbles in this, and they had to enlist the help of an animation studio out of China called Pacific Rim Productions. So this, this was like a big undertaking of a film. And they still did keep some standards of you know, the original princess films in the production of this. It wasn't a completely we're starting from scratch thing. They still use the things that have built the company. And one of those things was the use of reference models. So reference models are, you can probably find footage of it on YouTube, especially for Renaissance era films. But it's usually when they uh, come in 
and they get actors to act out these scenes and like, you know, actors who they think would maybe be, you know, close in build and height and look to the the character and they would act out these scenes so that the animators can get a feel for like how would realistically this character you know move and behave and what are their facial expressions and so famously ariel's reference model for some of the the reference videos that they were doing um was sherry stoner and if that name sounds remotely familiar she was slappy squirrel in animaniacs um she was from she came from groundlings the like the um the comedy troupe she was slappy squirrel on the anim- on the animaniacs and she's done a lot of work in animation and so she was ariel's reference model and you can tell that they use sherry stoner as a reference model because there are some key hallmarks of sherry's that make their way into ariel's characterization mainly like her her lip bites every time you see ariel kind of like bite her lip in anticipation or in excitement that is a kind of facial hallmark of of terry and so that's just a really cool like little inspiration point um also ariel is inspired by Alyssa milano who was i think she was like around like 16 at the time so she would have been around the same age as ariel um and also like pieces of Jodie Benson make their way into the character so there's this kind of like you know this collage of different influences and inspirations for these characters and speaking of influences and inspirations one character has a very larger than life inspiration and that's Ursula and Ursula mainly in look is heavily inspired by the drag queen divine and I think that speaks to the larger like kind of like queer history of the little mermaid like there are these different points in the origins of the original story and of this film and there's this definitely like queer you know tone to the film that i think has what is is a part of what has made it so endearing to all different types of people um and different audiences and it's really neat so there was all of these things that are happening with with animation many of which like they were doing a lot of work behind um because they weren't using the full breadth of digital animation yet so much of it was hand drawn and the storm sequence in the film took like a year to animate because they were they had all these different effects and elements and then and the director said that it had as many like visual effects as fantasia did the film like that was the last time disney did as many visual effects as they did in one film um all packed into one scene so the storm scene where ariel saves eric from the burning ship uh that took that scene that's like two minutes took a year to animate so that is the amount of detail that these people were putting into the animation and i think it definitely paid off so the other big piece that we talked about last week but i didn't go into a ton of detail on because i wanted to expand on it in this week's episode was obviously the music so you'll remember i mentioned at the top of the episode that katzenberg jeffrey katzenberg brings in howard ashman to begin to do the music for the little mermaid and one of the first things that they that he began writing on was part of your world that was one of the first songs that he wrote and unofficially he brought in um alan mankin 
who was his creative partner and worked with him on a little shop of horrors that just finished its off-Broadway run and got a film adaptation, um, which fun fact was directed by Frank Oz, voice of Miss Piggy and Fozzie the Bear, uh, famously famous collaborator of Jim Henson. So big, big Disney tapestry happening with, with the little mermaid again, but, um, they just finished their run of little shop of horrors. And so, Ashman brings on Mencken and they together do the music for this film. And so one of, like I said, one of the first songs that they write is part of your world. And so part of your world was originally going to be cut by Jeffrey Katzenberg um, because when they showed the, a test screening during a test screening for, which usually comprises mainly of kids, uh, the kids were becoming restless at that part of the movie and so Jeffrey Katzenberg was like, yeah, let's scrap it. Like the kids don't want to see it. And he said that he also kind of got a little bit bored of the, of the the song. And so he's like, I think we should just, we should just can it. And Howard Ashman was like, I will literally, I will quit this movie if you get rid of this song. Like this song is so necessary. And he goes on to explain that there needs to be a point where the audience sits with Ariel and really gets to know what it is that she wants. They need to hear her. And part of your world feels like this. It doesn't feel like she's singing to us, obviously, but it feels like the stream of consciousness that she's working through in real time and is being so vulnerable and all of her aspirations and all of the things that she wants to accomplish. And I think so many people misinterpret that she's not really singing about like you know finding love or anything like that like ariel just wants to be free and she wants she knows that something is out there and she wants to go and see it for herself and part of your world is that song where she's being so vulnerable and is kind of setting the stage and saying hey these are my desires these are my hopes these are my dreams and this is where howard ashman kind of introduces disney to the concept of the I want song and he kind of reminds them that they've been doing songs like this for a very long time like obviously i'm wishing a dream is a wish your heart makes like these are i want songs even though they weren't officially called i want songs at the time that they were being you know produced but these are necessary parts and hallmarks of disney princess films and they didn't even know it and they were going to cut this this <laughs> this film's i want song um but Ultimately, Howard Ashman was like, it's not going to happen. Not on my watch. We we, we got to keep this song. And a lot of people have talked about this kind of like that Howard Ashman really had this way about him that you you didn't want to say no, like because you just you trusted him. Like you were just like, OK, yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm not going to fight you on that. And John Muskers and Ron Clemens have, have mentioned that there was kind of this contentiousness with them, um, with them versus Howard Ashman uh, at certain points with like certain lyrics. So I think they mentioned that in part of your world, they wanted to take out the song. Uh, they wanted to take out the part of the song where she says, I want to be where the people are. They said, take out the, the, so it, this, the lyric would just be, I want to be where people are. And Howard Ashman vetoed it. He was just like, I don't want her to drag out the note on where it should just be where the people are. And so in hindsight, they were like, yeah, that was kind of a dumb thing for us to try and fight him on. 
but there was just real big trust in in Howard Ashman and the vision that he had for the music and and broader uh, for the film because he was a producer on the film as well. And there were a lot of like story things that he was heavily involved in. Like originally when this when the movie was being concepted, Sebastian as a character was this very dry kind of British inspired uh, character, and it was Ashman's idea to make him Jamaican because it would open up the door musically uh, for them to infuse, you know, kind of Calypso into the sound of, of the music. And that's where you get songs like Under the Sea. And so there was all these different pieces and and sounds and textures of music that were being woven into this film. And that is really the work of, of Ashman and Mankin. Like they laid the foundation of like, hey, we're going to bring in all these different elements and they mean something to the story. It's not just a song for the sake of being a song. It has value to the movie. And so going back to to part of your world after he was like, you will not be cutting this song. Uh, the production of it was really interesting, too. So like I mentioned, Jody Benson came from the stage and she had just done Smile with Howard Ashman. She comes on to The Little Mermaid and when they were initially recording the song, she was singing like how she knew to sing, which is you, if you're a theater actress, you're singing to the last row, you know, like you are projecting, you're being very big and very boisterous. And it was just, it was feeling too big for what the song is. And if you've listened to Part of Your World relatively recently, like I said, it is Ariel kind of speaking out loud these things that have been swirling in her head. So there's, it's much more thoughtful it's much more pensive it's much more quiet <laughs> and that was the the main thing so during a recording session ashman goes into the booth with jody benson because she had been doing a couple takes and she was kind of she admits that she was kind of over singing the song um because again broadway actress she's singing it like you would on stage and so ashman goes into the booth with her which is something that most voice directors are not doing and he's standing right next to her and there's like there's footage of it you can find it on youtube and he asks for all the lights to be turned off in in the booth and where they're recording and he wants it to be dark save for just the light where the lyrics are and he tells her to kind of imagine like being in water and being still and being quiet and he then instructs her sing it like that like sing it with that in mind and so he she kind of like curls up into a ball you can see in the um in the footage and she sings it very hushed and very quietly there are points where she crescendos and it gets big but by and large it still quickly comes back down where she's just like these are my wishes like it, it has that moment of like you almost like inflating a balloon and then you get the the decline again and a really cool thing that Mankin and Ashman decided to do with Part of Your World specifically is having, is cutting together pieces of Benson's performance that weren't totally perfect. Um, so if she kind of, you know, didn't, didn't have the right inflection here, then have the right inflection there or saying too much here or saying too little here. Like she, they cut together pieces of her performance that weren't like, you know, like completely tonally perfect they wanted it to sound a little imperfect to relay that again these are just 
the a raw exhibition of Ariel's emotions and they're laying out here. And that ultimately brings you part of your world, which is one of the most prominent I want songs and is kind of the pillar of what Disney is has done and is doing with with music. Like it is the standard. You know, it is it becomes instantly as memorable as a dream is your wish your heart makes and I'm wishing and all these songs. And it is again due in large part to Howard Ashman and Alan Menken. And so all these pieces of the puzzle, they come together, come hell or high water, come, you know, songs almost getting cut, come some studio executives not believing that a movie like this could resonate with people beyond little girls. And there was, I think, at the very beginning of production, like I said, Jeffrey Katzenberg was like, I don't even think this movie's going to make, you know, as much money as Oliver and Company, which wasn't a complete sinker, but it did make a ton of money. He was like, I don't think it's going to make a ton of money. I don't think people are going to want to see a film solely centered around just like this, this, you know, girl character. Like, this is not going to resonate with little boys and everything like it's just not going to be that and then by the end of production he's like this is going to be a hit it's going to make all this money it's going to be this blockbuster because he had started to see the pieces of the puzzle coming together and what reveals itself is the little mermaid this massive hit and so the movie opens and it is it's a massive hit um it less was like this crazy box office juggernaut and more was just a, a battle one that Disney can and will continue to make a really good Disney princess film. And they proved that they could do it with this, you know, new class of animators, this new group of executives. Like it was kind of this, you know, are they going to be able to accomplish it feat that, that, that happened and happened. It did. And it, it set the tone for the next 10 years of the company, which were one of the most profitable 10 years in the company's entire history. So not only just with, you know, the the box office influence and everything, it, it brought back the Disney Disney princess. And I think the the lasting legacy of of the Little Mermaid is definitely this narrative about someone who feels straddled between two worlds and feels like there's something out there for her and she knows that it's out there for her and she just has to have the will to go and find it and that messaging has really been so you know prominent and I think has resonated like I said so much with so many queer people and there's this really amazing queer legacy of the little mermaid and you know from the people involved with it to the source material to just the the general messaging there's a, a lot of really great articles and videos from a lot of queer people talking about how important of a movie The Little Mermaid was to them because of its messages on identity and the the will to be yourself, you know, and there were just all these different pieces that were really great about the film that resonated with audiences beyond maybe even what the filmmakers, you know, thought that it would resonate with. And ultimately, I think the legacy of, of the film is really just this this movie that put Disney kind of back on the map, um, which is a big thing for one movie to do. But The Little Mermaid did it. And it was in so many large parts to 
the the filmmaker so ron clemens and john musker it is the you know with credit it is the the studio executives who pull together the team who made this film it's the animators like glenn keen and mark hen and andreas deja it is the you know the technicians who are working to make the film go and animating water ask any animator and animating water is a nightmare to do and they did it and it still looks beautiful it still looks amazing even you know 30 plus years removed from the release of the film it's it still looks incredible and that's just proof positive to the the quality of of the the team working on it and all those 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 pieces came together and the the voice acting with Jodie Benson and Pat Carroll as Ursula and you know all of these these pieces came together and you create this film that has this everlasting legacy and quality to it that now has created a reboot that is having that same effect with a whole new generation of people um in at the time of recording this uh the little mermaid live action film is not out yet but it's had its premiere and just seeing the little girls who were at the premiere interact with Hallie Bailey who is playing Ariel and seeing how for a whole new generation of girls um you know she is their she's their Ariel and she is their you know representative of this idea of dreaming and the tenacity to dream and the tenacity to find you know what's out there and being part of that world you know um, and I think that's the really beautiful part of, of The Little Mermaid. Like I said, it's not like a movie that I'm like, you know, always head over heels for, but I'm head over heels for its place in, in film history and Disney history and animation history and just what it means as a, as a whole. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode, Afternooners. This is a longer one than we've had in a very long time, but there was so much. And there's even so much that I didn't say about <laughs> The Little Mermaid um, and the production of it, but it was a doozy and I hope you enjoyed it. If you don't know, The Afternooners is my name for all of us. So if you made it to the end of this episode, congratulations, you're an Afternooner now. If you like this episode, don't forget to rate and review this podcast. If you had a good time, it helps up the pod. You get to tell me how you're feeling about the pod. And I get that sweet hit of praise and validation that is my life force and keeps me going. If you want to know where else to find me on the internet, you can find me at the afternoon special on TikTok or Instagram or over on Twitter at hi, I'm Bobby, H-I-I-M-B-O-B-B-I. And if you're thinking, Bobby, I need to go and watch the little mermaid and then i need to go and listen to the jonas brothers cover of poor unfortunate souls which is very good by the way um so i'm not gonna remember all of that bestie i get it and i agree the jonas brothers cover of poor unfortunate souls is very good and i think you should go and listen to it um but i've left all that information in the description down below just for you you're welcome i hope you enjoyed this week's chat and that you will join me again next week for another princess-themed pop culture deep dive. Later days, friends. Whether you're in a relationship, single, or recently heartbroken, you could be navigating some tough stuff. And it really can be challenging to do this on your own. We all need help when it comes to our relationships, very specifically, our love lives. I'm Jillian, and each week on my podcast, Jillian on Love, 
I share skills on how to strengthen our relationships, how to build a stronger sense of self, and how to heal heartbreak and choose better partners. Learn how to start making change today and search for Jillian on Love wherever you're listening now. Hi, just checking in and seeing if you might want to step away from the noise of the world for just a moment and connect back to you. If so, join me on my podcast, Letting It Settle with Michael Gallion, where we'll explore mindfulness, self-love, and personal growth as I share practical insights and tools to hopefully help inspire you to start to take charge of your mental and emotional well-being. Search for Letting It Settle with Michael Gallion on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening now.